Welcome to Unapologetic Women, a podcast with Tony and Sorsha about current affairs, culture, politics, life, and how we got here. These are unscripted conversations about the things we care about, not the things that we're experts in. Hey, Tony, how are you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? Living the dream. Oh, I love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Craig and I are going down a very exciting path right now, which is purchasing our first home together home ownership um, yeah so i'm not going to jinx it i'm not going to talk about it no. until we've closed signed sealed delivered but touch wood teaser for you all out there i will have all the tales of mortgages and closing um in hopefully a couple of weeks and it's your first time doing this in the U- in the u.s isn't it first time buying a home point blank yeah and yes u.s of course being the added craziness because my you know my family don't have experience buying a house here so when I'm calling them it's like oh I don't know if that's not a thing in England but maybe it's a thing in America Uh, so fingers crossed big deep breaths I've been having a lot I've been thinking a lot about that like the cultural context of how important it is just basically for everything and it's even down to like home ownership of what's culturally acceptable what's normal what you're used to what's unusual in one country is just not unusual somewhere else it's fascinating it really is like like it permeates everything even the little things of like for those of you who are listening at home at my home uh for folks in london like it's so every house has a fence like it's a normal thing that houses have fences yeah that is not a thing in new england or like they're not real fences they're like the little metal ones or like little wooden ones yeah um and so i'm definitely going to be that person who like moves into the neighborhood and builds a six-foot fence (laughs) (laughs) welcome now i'm shutting myself off from the world but it is it's if you're used to privacy if you're also used to just living in london you either live outside of london where the houses are pretty far away from each other or you're in townhouses where there's a wall built around your tiny garden yeah the wall thing is real like it's very normal to have a brick wall around your house like that's it's like that's the boundary of your property yeah <laughs> that's not that's us yeah not a thing here um so yeah i've been in that world and then been very very deep in we're what like less than less than 50 days out from the election and so less than 40 i think now less than 40 yeah sorry yeah it's October next week. Yeah, Blech. yeah, that's the thing. Um, so yeah, been deep in that world, and I actually had an amazing conversation. Oh, do share a few nights ago with um, a man named Noah, who is leading the project poll workers, uh, and kind of got to sit, sync up with him yesterday on just like why did he do it, what was the impetus behind it, um. Yeah. And it was fascinating. And I think, you know, September 1st was National Poll, uh, National Poll Worker Day. Um, and so what you've seen is a pit, like a celebrity pickup, we'll call it, on the value of being a poll worker and why it's important to our democracy. And it's really interesting because as someone who's worked in campaigns for many years, poll workers were a thing I knew about and poll watchers were a thing I knew about. And But it was never a... It was never a part of the campaign strategy. It was never, ever, like, national topic of conversation. Um, and so it's just fascinating to see that... Oh, that's interesting. ...how it shifts, like, how the campaign infrastructure can shift when faced 
with the unknown. Um, and so just to give folks kind of an overview, a poll worker is someone who is either hired or volunteers for their local election division. Um, they will work, like it depends county to county, but the most common use case of this is that they will work just on election day from the moment the polls open to like two or three hours after the polls close. If you are a voter in the US, these are the people who give you the I voted stickers. These are the people who you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. Do I use a pencil? Do I use a pen? Or can you explain where on my ballot this is? Like they are there to help you and facilitate the process. They are neutral, uh, that like acting as kind of an arm or, or an extension of the government body that is your election division. Yeah. And they tend to all over this country skew in age to be in the 65 plus range. As we all know, that is the yeah. population in the US that is the highest at risk, risk yeah. for COVID-19. So what we're seeing is a massive shortage of poll workers. What that actually means is that your polling locations will close. And so when I was talking to Noah, he and I will link to, to Noah's project after this, but the amount of research that he's done himself and, and the team behind him, there's six of them that are volunteers, they, they all have full-time jobs, but they really care about this. And looking at particular areas of the country in Minnesota, yep. when they had an, um, their primary election earlier in the year, there was a particular geographic county that had normally would have 155, and I might be getting these numbers wrong, but 155 polling locations, and they could only open 20 of them because they just didn't have the poll workers for it. And so what we've seen is a brand awareness campaign for one, what is a poll worker? Two, what do I need to do? Yeah. Three, how am I eligible yeah. to be a poll worker? And then focusing it on the demographics that are not as high risk. So there's a whole kind of group of people that are focusing on um, high school students because there are only five states that you actually have to be over 18 to be a poll worker. So there's a whole kind of contingency of like high school workers, how can they get involved? You know, they're not actually eligible to vote because they're not 18, but this is a part of the democratic process. Then there's the university students um, and targeting those. So Noah was telling me about, he's doing a lot of outreach right now to, you know, have a segment in the university newsletters and expressing the urgency around poll working. Um, and then there is the kind of celebrity influencer space where folks are asking for, and that's being run by an amazing group of folks called Power to yeah. the Polls. Um, Power to the Polls is a really like beautiful interface. It's a website where you can go and you can sign up and you can say, I want to be a poll worker. And what they've done, which has never been done before, is they've centralized all of the complicated nuances of poll working into one website. So you can go pop in your first name, last name, email address, zip code. And what will happen is they'll tell you what the process then is for your particular geographic location and di directly connect you to the Secretary of State's office or the county division that's running that's where you are. And because each of them are so different, like in some states you'll get paid up to $300. In some states, it's completely volunteer. In some states, you have to be a citizen, while in others, you just have to be a permanent resident. In some districts, you actually have to be registered to vote in that district to work as a poll worker. So there's a lot of nuance within it, and it's really just about how do we remove yeah. and lower the barrier to entry so that more people can actually be involved. And the thing that really excites me about this is it's a really easy way for people to be active politically without having to aff affiliate themselves with a campaign 
or identify their support for a particular party. It's It truly, to me, is a democratic process and allowing people to actually get involved with it in a way that has historically only been reserved for the elderly people in our community. It's fascinating listening to you share all of that because it feels like there's just a lack of education on these things and it feels like there's a lot of questions that are coming up for the first time in America poll workers being one, mail-in ballots that we spoke about last week being another, um, and all of this because we're in this sort of perfect storm of in the middle of a pandemic with a president who might not want to accept the the election results, so everyone's being very anxious, um, everyone's sort of freaking out that we're 40 days. It's, it's interesting listening to people say, you know, the election is in 40 days, and the flip side to that, which I'm sure you're in that body of people of just like no the election's already started we're we're in the middle of the elections like what are you talking about people are voting right now that's it early voting has opened up in i want to say like 10 states if not more absentee ballot voting has been open since september in some states like it's people are voting it's happening and i think that to your point tony of we live in this world of uncertainty that the president may actually just completely refuse to accept the election results because this is going to be the first time in the US history of elections like in that we are not going to have on November 3rd a here's the candidate because there are thousands if not tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that are going to vote by mail and the security that goes into that and the process that goes into that to ensure that those votes are counted that's not going to happen overnight as you were saying that there's a I got an email from the Atlantic, which I thought was just phenomenal, they they shared a story, I believe it was yesterday, that said um, the title is something along the lines of the election that could break America. Um, and actually, what's the subtitle of that? It's if the vote is close, Donald Trump could easily throw the election into chaos and subvert the result. Who will stop him? And what's fascinating is this should have been, I think, the cover or the main story for their October issue. But the email that came in from the editor was this was just too much of an important story that we can sit on it and we couldn't wait. So we're sharing it now. We've never really done this before, but we're pushing the story through. And it's it's just fascinating of how that is that is top of mind for so many people. And there are so many articles out there of what happens when he doesn't accept. But going back to the, to the poll workers, something else, I started um, a Stanford course that's the other day and it's just interesting we dug into polling as well um, and it is basically the intersection of like tech and, and and politics especially especially this 2020 election um but one of the things that came out that's tied to something that you were sharing there which I think is why the vote education is so important but also why it's so confusing is how decentralized America is and so that actually are well, we spoke a little bit about last week, but there are like, what is it, more than 10,000 different election jurisdictions, meaning different rules, different oversight, different tech capabilities, different decisions, different processes. And so I think what it sounds like what Noah's doing for the polling um, aspect of things is interesting because I think most people have no idea what it looks like in their district. What are the rules? What are the regulations? What are the things that you can do? One of we also talked about polling, um, and one of the questions that came up is, do you need to be an eligible American voter or citizen to become a poll worker? And you were saying it depends. depends. On... Yeah, but like you can't. The two options are either you're a citizen or you're a register, uh, you're a permanent resident. There is no like gray line of like you're on a visa or you're not a citizen or you're not a resident. Um, but that varies from state to state. And then within the state, it varies county to county of like, well, in this county, you can be yeah. a permanent resident, but in this county, you have to be a citizen. 
Um, you know, for you and I, who are neither permanent residents or citizens, we just we can't participate in that way. Yeah. And the thing that if I reflect back on when we were talking about um, the confusion that came with the political mail, and there's a process. layer of confusion with poll workers that people it's it's kind of touched the surface, but I think it's it's a little bit a little bit too in the weeds for the general narrative. Um, and so that is poll watchers versus poll workers. So a poll watcher is actually give like the campaign, a campaign that's running in that district is allowed to have a poll watcher. And that yeah. poll watcher's job is basically to go through and you'll have an ID sheet of like the your ones and twos, your supporters, and check them off as they come in to the polling location. It's a very strategic and like tactical program that campaigns run for poll watching, and it's it is inherently like partisan, <laughs> right? Like you have Democrats and Republicans that are going there to watch for the candidate that they're a part of the campaign for, and it's also really important that that person knows the precinct and knows the demographics because Mary Jo has come in and they've known Mary Jo their whole life, all that jazz. There's also a layer of what you're legally allowed to um, wear and uh, show up as in the polling location because they are a neutral ground, let's call it. And so like, there's no campaign collateral allowed to be in there. Like, You're not allowed to wear your campaign's button or t-shirt or whatever it is if you're a poll watcher, um, as opposed to a, a poll worker, the, the same neutrality of that, but you are as yeah. a poll watcher, someone who's actually reporting back to the campaign so that the campaign can remove a group of folks who've already voted out of their outreach plan. Um, and there was definitely some conflation that I've seen of that of like, well, campaigns are sending people into that. And it's like, oh, okay, that's always been done. That's not like a new shiny thing. No one's like infringing. That's, that's like a thing that's been allowed and, and people actually do and use as a campaign tactic. Yeah, interesting. It's um, as a non-American Again, on the class, on the course that I was taking, I think there was something like 13 different time zones covered. So a lot of people clearly not based in America um, taking this course. And there was a uh, somewhat of a, a discussion or a prompt that was made, which I thought was so interesting. And you and I have spoken about this previously of the difference between how in America elections are geared up by volunteers versus paid workers. Whereas in Europe, it's very rare to have so many volunteers it's still a fairly new concept and I remember when we uh, when I was working with the European Parliament for the 2019 European elections and we were talking about again campaign strategies what that could look like getting out the vote um, voter education you name it and we were talking about fun activities like you know whatever it could be whether it was mailers whether it was knocking on doors and their minds went straight to, well, how do we staff this? How much is this going to cost? Do we, is this in our budget? And it was interesting, the two or three people in there who were kind of familiar with US elections, and I was one of those, even though I know very little about it compared to someone like you. It was interesting, the knee-jerk reaction of, you don't need to pay these people. These are volunteers. They, they're, they're here because they want to see democracy at work. They want to see, They want to see this through. And they're excited about whatever you're putting forward. Um, and it was just a fascinating concept of, wow, thousands and hundreds and tens of thousands of people will volunteer for an election. It's just unheard of um, at the scale that it, as it is in America. I and mean, honestly, to me, that's the, there's this like deep belief of like the political ideology you hold and what that represents for you in this country in a way that 
I never saw to be true back home. And that stems, like, it's, Mm. when you think about just volunteering in general, if you're volunteering for, like, a let's save the animals campaign, that's, like, a very personal preference that you care about animals and you want to spend your time there. When it's, like, a political piece of it, it's your... You're so invested in this person, this candidate, this ideology that you believe will make the world or the locality that you live in a better place. And that messaging doesn't necessarily work in the EU from what I've seen. Uh, Although we have seen folks actually start to volunteer and be a part of that process. But here it is like a it's like a given right, right? It's like the freedom of speech component of like you have the right to go and volunteer and exercise your political rights to participate in a campaign. And that's just not the same at home. It's interesting because actually tied to that is something else I've been thinking about of just and and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like this is especially true with this election, but it is also unique to the US of the amount of merchandising that goes with elections and what I mean by that is on the one hand big companies big corporations even something like uh, like the real real has gotten on board which is a reselling a website for secondhand um, high-end secondhand goods but they've launched a campaign of getting out the vote and they're selling vote t-shirts and but everyone whether it's H&M to Louis Vuitton you name it but then on top of that also just mum and pop one man band shops just setting up you know biden merch 2020 and they've just gone and created a a slew of hoodies and jumpers and t-shirts i've never seen that in europe whether it's for french presidential elections uk presidential um uk prime minister um elections brexit you had a little bit of that but not to the level that you're seeing in it in america so it's fascinating being here and just seeing the merch shops pop up left right and center it's an industry and 2020 is unique in that, okay. in the fact that like corporate engagement with political campaigns, and I, I, they, there's a thousand reasons that we can speculate on this, but there is definitely a sense of our democracy is at stake, as opposed to who's going to be the next president. And so Patagonia's like vote him out on every tag <clears throat> that they don't. That is uniquely 2020. Yeah. You know like phenomenal voter that a lot of that is uniquely 2020 the merch component though like yes you always on u.s campaigns would have the t-shirts you and that would be five dollars the bumper stickers you'd have the beanie hats like and now there's a whole new realm of masks like everyone has a mask with the candidate's name on it um but yeah 2020 and i think in particular around the voting piece like we're we're not telling you which candidate to vote for we're just telling you to exercise your right as a citizen of the United States that has completely just like that is new to 2020 that you are especially the number of people that are popping up with it like Coca-Cola I'm pretty sure actually recently did an ad around National Voter Registration Day like that is unique to 2020 and I think it's great but the question I had and we're not going to be able to answer this question until November is like how does that actually skew is that oversaturation for folks? Are people just overwhelmed? Or is this going to impact it negatively? Or are we actually going to see for the first time ever, you know, an uptick in 20, 30% of voter participation? And the other thing yeah. is like, who is consuming this massive groundswell of like GOTV, get out the vote from corporations, pre- predominantly going to be millennial and Gen Z. And so figuring out how does that actually turn the needle? Like, do we see an uptick?
uptick in voter registration? Do we see an uptick in people actually working on the polls? Like all of that, I'm so excited to dig into the analytics of like, what was the impact of people throwing 50 grand on a brand awareness campaign for something that doesn't actually impact their bottom line of sales, but impacts the overall democracy, which brings us into the question of like corporate social responsibility as a whole. And it's interesting you bring that up because the, I, I need to find the exact article that mentioned this, but there was a few studies that have already been done that show that consumers are actually more more likely to be more loyal to brands that are taking a clear stance on these types of issues like getting out the vote and, and you know, and playing a part in our democracy and issues that they care about. And it was a Harvard Business Review um, study. So it's going to be interesting to see what the actual impact is, but it's fascinating to already read that consumers, and to your point, it's the Gen Z specifically, are going to be more attached to the brands that they feel took a stand. Um, and the other thing that I, the exercise that I've done for myself that I found interesting just because I found myself doing it is actually looking at whether it's getting out the vote or whether it's specific for, you know, the Biden-Harris campaign or the Trump campaign um, is having a look when you're buying the merch, what percentage of it is actually going to the campaign. And so it was interesting to see that some of, you know, the merch that you might be buying is like 40% is going to the campaign versus some ways, no, no, 99% of it is actually going to the campaign. No one is making a profit here. And so you're starting to see also a little bit of a difference there um, of people who are trying to make a quick buck as well, or those that are fully like, no, all of this money is going to the campaign campaign um which I never thought I'd have to look at but I found myself like comparing if I want to buy two sweatshirts how much money is actually going to be spent on the campaign (laughs) new concept and I haven't done uh, any research on this but I wonder how that actually impacts FEC filing reporting because as a corporation the amount you can give to a campaign and then also looking at the distribution of what is that going directly to Joe Biden, Camilla Harris's campaign, or is it going to PACs that are affiliated with the Joe Biden, Camilla Harris campaign? Like the follow the money concept is very interesting. And for those of you listening that have any interest, like FEC filing reports are publicly available information. You feel free to go, go to the website. You can type in any corporation, you can type in names, you can see how much they've given and to whom. Um, and so if you have interest in that, I would highly recommend looking at it. But that is fascinating to me because I saw, I think it was Miena's uh, phenomenal, phenomenal voter or she um, posted something the other day saying that it was 90% going to the victory fund and the victory fund is pack, is a pack, not the campaign. And so figuring out the nuances of that because how much campaign money can accept versus you being able to freely give to packs. Um, is very interesting to me. It's fascinating. It brings me back to, I think, our first or our second ever episode with the Australian bushfires and Celeste Mm. Barber. And where my head is going is the technology, there's two things that are happening. The tech and the consumer products and the whole drop shipping mechanism is the barrier to entry basically is so low to be able to launch shops and merches and, and helping in that regard. Um, so there's that that's happening that I think it's lower than it ever has been and it's easier for anyone. You and I could just set up a shop today and we wouldn't need to actually buy the products. We can do the whole dripping, drop, drop shipping scenario. God, that was hard to get out. And coupled with our democracy is at stake, 2020 is so unique that we're seeing more and more of this happening, but also we're seeing it happening. 
the people who are creating this might not be fully aware of what the rules and the, reg- the, the, the regulations are around getting donated. Similar to Celeste Barber, who was saying, you know, we'll decide where we send the money, which no, no, actually, when you set up a campaign, you collect donations. You have to make it really clear where this is going to. You can't change your mind halfway through, which is obviously when you take a step back and you think of it, that's logical. But it's not actually when you're, you're in the heat of the moment and just want to do good, basically. And what you just said there of like you and I, we can't. That's illegal. We're foreign citizens. So neither of us could actually do that. But that's not something that is like clear. If you have been living in the country for 10 years, you're, yeah, like Edward's nearly, I'm nearly at that point, right? And I want to be involved. And I know that if I've got 10,000 followers, I can pop up a shop and get donations. That's actually illegal. Uh, You know what? I didn't know that. Yeah, you can't, as a foreign national, you can't donate. Um, It's foreign interference in your elections. That, and so that my dad has been going on at me um, forever. He's like, you need to get involved in with Kamala Harris. She's, you know, in your because she's obviously from San Francisco. And you know, it's like and he was saying, you know, you need to go. And I was like, I don't think I can. I need to check. But I said exactly what you said is it will be seen as foreign interference in this election. And he just basically was like, oh, yeah, I get that. I mean, especially in the heightened tension that we have right now. Um, we're running out of time. But there's one thing that I wanted to share with you that blew my mind something else that was said on this course that I want to dig into at a later stage but I didn't know and you're probably going to say yeah of course I knew this there's no national election authority oversight in the US and it's one of the only countries where there isn't a national election authority oversight every other country that I can think of has it and they were saying that most countries obviously have such authorities but the associated press is as close as you get to in America and they've just never had and it's just wild to me that America doesn't have an oversight I would say that that's up for debate because the Secretary of State at the federal level is technically the oversight however that's appointed by the president right the Secretary of State is who gives the jurisdictions of what's happening in elections and then you also have like pockets of that so like the fec the, the federal election commission is also the oversight for the finance component of electoral process in this country the problem there is that there are political appointees affiliated with that so there isn't like a governing body yeah. that is neutral however as a governing body based on the actual like articles of the law you are to be neutral um it's like saying it's like the post office right like the post office is neutral but we all know that that's very different with our current postmaster general so like it there is and there isn't a governing in my opinion there is and there isn't a governing but a national governing body for the election because technically that's the secretary of state's job and role maybe it's coming up as because i heard that and i was like that's absolutely insane to me um but maybe to your point it's 2020 is a heightened um scenario that all of these questions are popping up and it's that honestly we should talk about this next next week like the whole oversight the security element of it the usps what's happening there um i don't know if you can hear the crows in the background but i am being surrounded by crows <laughs> it feels like doomsday scenario right? i do yeah. love a good but crow they're... doomsday scenario um there's like 20 or 30 <laughs> of them um the other thing that that brings up for me though Jamie, and we have to have to have to have a conversation on this maybe we'll do a uh, I don't know what you call it. Anyway, we'll we'll talk about it. Is the judicial system in this country and the polarization of the fact that we're now going into a six v three in the Supreme Court? And I, you know, there's a lot of news coverage on 
RBG and, you know, God rest her soul, I wouldn't be able to buy a mortgage um, without her. So thank you for that and just all the love for, for that woman. But there's a lot happening in this election and we're excited to take you all on a journey with us through our personal experience of it. So please tune in next week. We made it. We're at the end of our lovely conversation. And thank you so much for being with us throughout it. Please continue to follow along on our journey and share it with your friends and family through Instagram, Unapologetic Women Podcast, or on our website, unapologeticwomen.ca.